Welcome to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwendinger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a lovely five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight and analysis and practical application that you can take back to the office to help protect your organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. And you know, you don't even need to sneak a rat into a Windows machine. Bill Gates was already there. All right. So the first article is titled, Want to Sneak a Rat into Windows by Quantum Builder on the Dark Web. And this comes to us from the register. Of course, with a title like that. Uh, of course. Yeah. No mention of Bill Gates, though, but they, maybe, maybe next time. Maybe it's a different rat they're sneaking in. Yeah, Steve Ballmer? Splinter. Oh, wait. All right. So it's it's getting pretty cheap now to be able to buy custom malware on the dark web. You know, it, it, it says in this title that it's a you want to buy the, the quantum builder, but it's really just another service. It's everything. Uh, they're trying to turn everything into razor blades. They're trying to turn everything. Uh. It's like yeah, instead of the Dollar Shave Club, you got the malware, the Dollar Malware Club. <laughs> it's the thing from, well, I think it was Stanley, the the tool company, where they said, you know, last year we sold them a, a million quarter-inch drill bits, but none of our customers wanted to do a bit. What they wanted was a quarter-inch hole. Yeah. Uh, so you want to sell them the quarter-inch hole creating service and not the actual device that creates the hole yeah they're just looking for a quarter inch hole specifically in a firewall <laughs> well i think that what they want is they really want a train size hole in the firewall they don't want a quarter that's inch fair. size hole in that's the firewall fair. well you can customize the dropper on the site but it's really worthless without the secondary stages which are hosted on remote servers and that's really where the service aspect comes into it so the quantum builder you can buy access for 200 dollars a month or 954 lifetime access which is not a bad deal I guess it's not really your lifetime. It's the lifetime of the, <laughs> before they get. Right. Well, I, I, that assumes the, yeah, the life of the, of the producers of the malware, I suppose, you know, if they don't get wrapped up, but as the, um, man, what was that Russian's name? We were talking, talking about the interview with a couple of weeks remember. ago. Been- Mikhail, I think was his first name, but you know, he was saying, as long as you stay loyal to mother Russia, then you don't have to worry about getting rolled up. That's fair. But this quantum builder has several pretty good features, which make it, I think, worth the money that you'd be shelling out for this thing here. So they have living off land binaries, decoys. I'm not exactly sure how that works in malware, though. Do you have any speculation on that, Matt? I should have had the article open so that I could go examine what they were talking about with decoys. Oh, they don't, well, they don't give any details. They just say that it provides decoys. I'm just not sure exactly what that means. You know, what is a decoy for a piece of malware? Oh, I see. It's quoted... Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to trigger like decoy malware because it may lead them to go take a closer look at it. Yeah, it just seems kind of strange. So there, there's a different article from Zscaler which talks about execution of decoys to distract the victims post-infection. So I wonder if that's almost like the the fake like documents that it flashes up, so that you don't you're not like why did I click on this and nothing happened. Hmm. Okay. Maybe. I suppose you'd call that a decoy. I'm not sure I would, but. So there is actually, here we go. In some cases, we also came across in-memory decrypted PowerShell scripts, which downloaded and executed a decoy file using the invoke item function. This was done to distract the victims from the malicious activities as shown in the screenshot below. 
why would they download an additional piece of malware to trigger and bring attention? That makes so little sense. Strange. Unless it's one of those scenarios where when you execute the malware, you get a command dialogue that pops up. Maybe. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're trying, maybe they're expecting IT to come through and run malware bytes on it or something. And then they're like, all right, we're done. And that doesn't actually remove your main main malware. But if your main malware is not detectable anyways, then why would you bring attention to it? That's odd. I agree. Yeah, yeah, because nothing else makes sense to me. Why would you want to bring their attention at all to what happened? You want them to be like, everything is perfectly fine. Uh, But they also had UAC uh, bypass using Microsoft Connection Manager Profile Installer, CMSTP, in-memory PowerShells that execute the final payload, and of course, regular updates, which everybody everybody wants when they pay for a service, provided they don't get rolled up and tossed into jail. But of course, the reason we're even talking about this is they are making this stuff simpler and simpler for anybody to get their their hands on and to use for nefarious purposes. And at these price points, it's not terribly expensive for anybody to get into that market either. It's like rather than having to develop the skills necessary in order to pick locks with a lock pick, you know, people are starting to sell bump keys to bypass locks. It's just getting easier and easier for people to get into these systems without a whole lot of skill and without a lot of expense either. All right. So what you can do about it is this, this particular piece of malware is propagating through .link files, .lnk files. And so you should probably consider which executable, I'm sorry, not which executable, but which file extension you're allowing through email and trying to limit that to, to ones that are, well, considering Windows, Windows files are pretty dangerous, not necessarily less dangerous files, but ones that you are not typically seeing sent through email or, or extensions that are high risk. But of course, having a good EDR is also helpful. Yeah, and actually turn on blocking. Because most of these, although again, that decoy file thing makes me wonder if maybe the main one's not detectable or maybe like part of it is, or you you may still get an alert for it. And they're trying to have an easy thing for you to see and be like, oh, we caught it. Because most of the methods that they mention here are not all that. Like living off the land binaries is something that a lot Mm -hmm. of stuff detects now. The in-memory PowerShell, a lot of stuff will detect that now. I don't know. It, it, I mean, even the, even that very concept, though, seems, I know, amateurish is probably not the right way to phrase it, but why don't you improve your malware so you don't have to have something that needs to distract <laughs> the user if it's not detectable? So you've already got past the detection part. Yeah. So you just need to get past this necessity to distract the user. Just improve that so you don't have to do the distraction. And yeah. just rather than write, maybe, because it seems like, you know, these guys are actually spending some time in writing this in a fairly robust and, and configurable manner. So I'm not sure why they're 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 taking this shortcut with this decoy concept if we're understanding yeah. that correctly anyway. Well, yeah, that, that part was pulled off Zscaler about actually running a separate program. So that's not even our interpretation. That's but yeah, I, I don't know. It's weird. Agreed. All right. Next article is not as weird. The next uh, article is pretty predictable, actually. Actually, it's standard fare. So standard it's not going to surprise anybody. But the uh, title for this article is Ever suspect bankers could you just use WhatsApp comms? $1.8 billion says you're right. I actually, is... realized, I actually realized we might have had a lot of articles from the register this time. You can never have too many articles from the register, though. <laughs> you know, and 
but in all the articles, I haven't had them refer to boffins at all, which is ah, I'm so you know, disappointed. disappointing. Yes, very. But several banking giants have agreed to pay $1.8 billion in penalties to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and $710 million in fines to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, all in separate actions to stop their workers from using unauthorized messaging apps, which is a, a violation, apparently, of Section 17A of the Exchange Act, which is short for the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. And when I read it, it wasn't clear exactly how they were able to tie this back to the Act, because the Act says, facilitate the establishment of a national system for the prompt and accurate clearance and settlement of transactions in securities. And I think that's saying that you're not using the national system, whatever that is, in order to do this. I'm not sure. It seems odd. But it basically comes down to, according to SEC, that they were failing to monitor their record-keeping and book records obligation. Hmm. Yeah, because they're supposed to keep track of these conversations, right? Right. Yeah, like any regulatory requirement, they said, hey, you have to keep this piece of data for X number of years or whatever. And these communications that they're using for what app, WhatsApp, were supposed to be part of that record-keeping. And you may have heard of some of these firms that were involved in this. Uh, surprisingly <laughs> enough, Barclays, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Citigroup, Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, eh, kind of household no. names. I don't think I recognize them. Yeah, no, no. Never heard of any of these multi-billion dollar <laughs> banks engaging in this stuff. But what's interesting about this thing or this article or, or, or this whole thing is revolves around the personal device aspect of it. So to quote from the article, the SEC said in a statement, that's investigation uncovered pervasive off-channel communications and that after gathering communications from personal devices of just a sample of the various firm's personnel, they found off-channel exchanges between senior and junior investment bankers and debt and equity traders. So they collected these people's personal devices as part of this in order, in order to determine that they were doing this outside of the official comms channel. But as part of the settlement to pay the fine, they also agreed to retain compliance consultants to, among other things, conduct comprehensive reviews of their policies and procedures relating to the retention of electronic communications found on personal devices. So this seems to indicate not only did they collect these personal devices and get this information from them this time, but they expect these companies to build a framework to continually do this in the future from their employees' personal devices also. And I don't know if they got warrants for these personal devices. I remember leading up to this actual, you know, when this first broke a few months ago, reading about this, and there was no mention of warrants or anything from the government to inspect these personal devices. And so I don't know what kind of leverage the companies themselves have in order to ask their 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 employees to turn over their personal devices other than saying we're going to fire you if you don't do so it just seemed odd to me that without real without leverage that these people participating in this would turn over their personal devices anyway because personal handsets now are pretty they're relatively secure against you know any kind of forced entry especially if you have an apple device but there was also no mention of anyone going to jail or any personal fines in the article or in the press release from the from the SEC. 
Yeah. I'm I'm curious about that too, because this is SEC is not a criminal, like this isn't a criminal prosecution. It's a regulatory prosecution. Like you fail yeah. to follow the regulation. So we're gonna fine you mm-hmm. X amount X amount of dollars, which turns out to be 1.8 billion. Which sounds reason. like a pretty 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 good chunk of change. But if 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 this is 1.8 billion spread across 16 different banks, that's not a whole heck of a lot, to be honest. No. Yeah, this is why I don't do anything for work on my personal device. They give you sometimes give you the option of you know downloading your email or doing other things. No, I want to keep that completely separate from work. Right. And if you're gonna you know break regulation of the law, then you should obviously get a burner device. That is not legal to, legal advice <laughs> or a recommendation on part of this podcast or our affiliates. Obviously not. But I mean, I have used my personal phone to call into WebEx and things like that. That's fair. That's fair. So, yeah. Though I don't have the WebEx app on my phone or or anything like that, where I would use it to to connect to business meetings or or anything of that nature. But so there was another thing that was actually I thought was rather strange in the press release from the SEC, which will be linked in the show notes. And this is the quote at at the very last paragraph of the SEC press release. It says, the SEC's investigation, which is ongoing, is being conducted by Zachary Sturgis, Karen Wilkins of the New York Regional Office, Ian Ruppel of the SEC headquarters, Helen Ann Listerman and Jessica Niederman of Asset Management Unit. The case is being supervised by Thomas P. Smith, Jr., Osman Nawaz, Carol Washhands, Carol Corey Schuster, and Laurel Josephs. I was like, what is, is this like a, a pitch for their resume or something? It's just weird. It's like, oh, and this is, this press release is brought, or this investigation is brought to you by, you know, these people here. It's almost like credits. Um, it's, uh, it's the bribe list. <laughs> I was thinking it was the, <laughs> the revolving door list to say, hey, remember these folks when the door evolves and they, you see their, their resumes cross your desk. The same thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. That's that is a good point. Just bizarre. Because anytime you you usually in the news when they're talking to law enforcement types about something that they're investigating or whatever, what do they always say? Oh, we can't comment on an ongoing investigation. But this paragraph starts off with saying, "Hey, the investigation's ongoing, and here's all the people that are involved in it." <laughs> it just seems really bizarre that you'd find that paragraph at the bottom of an SEC press release. It's a little weird. But the reason this even matters to regular people is if your company has regulatory requirements for data retention, you know, unless you're Hillary Clinton, you could get in trouble for storing this kind of stuff on your personal devices that's supposed to be used for business communications. So what you should do about it is ensure that, you know, if you are in a regulated industry, make sure you know what your data retention requirements are and understand that failure to follow these could lead to some large fines, especially if they determine that you are not following these data retention requirements on purpose, you know, versus simply failing to do it correctly. And considering that these folks are talking about being able to monitor personal communication devices for comms and things of that nature, you might want to see if that, if, or consider whether it would be necessary for you to use an MDM on your employee's personal devices, if it should come to that. You know, I because I assume that is probably the way that they're going to solve that. Well, I don't know exactly solve, but the way they're going to address this policy and procedure issue with personal comps in this case. And there are other places where 
they don't actually give out corporate communications devices. What they do is they install MDM on personal devices that sandbox off or cordon off business acts, business communication data from the rest of your personal device on the phone. Yeah, but I wouldn't want that personally. I would rather keep it completely separate if possible. Yeah, carry around those two phones, which is awesome. I love doing that. <laughs> I just don't carry around the second one. <laughs> Since <laughs> I haven't I haven't done IR in about a year and a half, so <laughs> I don't need to be that reachable. Oh, well, lucky you. Yeah, For a well, second, I was like, well, so that means you're doing personal business on your business phone or, <laughs> or business stuff on your personal phone? What's the trade-off here? But well, I mean, that's what you get. That's what you get for being in management. All right. Next article is from Dark Reading, and it is, when will cybersecurity get its Bloomberg terminal? Yeah, so this one is, so the Bloomberg terminal, I did a little bit of history on this one. It was introduced in 1982, and it combines a number of data sources, including market data, global currencies, commodities, real estate, and politics. And this author here is proposing that cybersecurity needs something similar. It's, of course, referring to the single pane of glass that we've all heard discussed and tossed around for over a decade at this point, although I'm sure it's been even longer. Yeah, I think the real trouble with the single pane of glass is that only unicorns can spin the glass and... <laughs> <laughs> it's just really hard to get a hold of. That's yeah, the real so problem expensive. here. So expensive. So I've never seen a Bloomberg terminal. So the first thing I did when we got this article after reading it was I looked up, you know, what is a Bloomberg terminal? And I included the link to the article I was looking at in the show notes, but it is a combination of hardware and software. For some reason in my head, I was thinking like a like an ATM-like thing that they, you know, physically put into your office. Yeah, and maybe it was back in the day, but now they ship you a special keyboard with specific keys for navigation and then a software package that delivers the information. So the keyboard has the F keys are no longer functioning. Well, they are functions, but they are specifically to go to market sector or asset class pages specifically. The numpad and that little section with the insert home page up, page down keys are also modified. So they have special features as well. They have software that delivers the information, up-to-date market information on equities, derivatives, fixed income securities, foreign exchanges. There are pages where they have built-in analytics that cover a number of major, major asset classes. So you can do some technical analysis directly in the terminal. There is a page listing all major economic forecasts and their coming schedule. The whole idea here is that anything you need to try and do you know, your analysis on stocks or bonds, it is all in this one piece of software. And there are, it's not, it's not all, I mean, we can argue about this thing. I mean, it can be argued a single pane of glass is your browser, like, cause you can open up multiple tabs to multiple things, but it's all in this one software package. It's fairly expensive for individuals. It's 24,000 per year, $2,000 per month, but that is so much cheaper than information security tools. Why? can't we do this? Like we're paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for something like Splunk. And here's a tool that is doing something that brings all the stuff a, you know, stock analyst needs for $24,000 per year per person. It's got to be about like backend API access, right? Maybe they've got better APIs to connect everything. I don't know. I'm, it I'm seems kind of, what seems kind of strange if you think about the API aspect of it though, because Looper Terminal introduced in 1982, not sure there were a lot of APIs hanging out. So maybe time. maybe it's the data collection and formatting then. Like maybe all the data is formatted because that's one of the big problems with InfoSec tools is that everybody's got their own format. Oh, um, right. It's pretty uniform in, in what they're transmitting and how it's displayed and everything. So maybe. 
Yeah, yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense because before they had the Bloomberg terminals, and I'm sure you've seen this in older movies, is the ticker tape, you know, with the little strip coming out with the holes punched in and all that stuff. So even way back during, I think it may have been the ticker tape, maybe even been in, in use during or the roaring 20s when the when the first crash happened, which spawned a whole bunch of other things. I think they may have even had it back then. So it, it's a uh, also a matter of maturity. You know, they've had decades and decades. That's true to put all this stuff in place and get it uniform and everybody consuming the same stuff and looking at it the same way and everybody interested in the same pieces of data. Because one of the things here is, you know, if you're interested in just say derivatives, right? That information is going to be uniform regardless of who's generating the data. You know, if it comes from, you know, Bob's derivatives or Jack's derivatives or whatever, that's going to look the same, the same data <laughs> elements and everything in it. But if you have MacFit EDR versus Semantics EDR, or, you know, that data, those all those data elements are going to be labeled different. They're going to be in a different format. So that has a lot of challenges there as far as that, so, which make it a little bit more difficult. But, you know, Matt was talking about, this is pretty in inexpensive. I looked through the article and I pulled out some additional numbers here that will see what a big deal the Bloomberg terminal is, at least for Wall Street. Because according to Bloomberg, they have more than 325,000 paid subscribers to the Bloomberg terminal. That equates to a gross profit of $650 million a month, $7.8 billion annually. That's a lot of incentive for Bloomberg to get that terminal right. I think if, we, if there was something of equal incentive on the security side to do that, we could probably have an awesome single-pane glass terminal as well. So we only need $6 billion? Yeah, we could probably do it for five. You know, someone wants to pay me five, I'll get to work on this. <laughs> right away. Right away. Right away. Yeah, no, that's fair. But reading about this, I feel like we've kind of in some ways already, I mean, obviously we have something like this. We have, we have SEMs. SEMs are less complex. This sounds like this would be more like if you combine the SEM plus the IDS IPS plus the EDR plus the SOAR and plus your RSS feed all together into one platform which we kind of do with a browser. The The big difference though, is the inability to send the data back and forth between them. Like if you're in an RSS feed and you see something really cool and you're like, oh man, I wonder if we're seeing these IOCs in our environment, you have to copy and paste them over into your SIM to search for them. It sounds like from the Bloomberg terminal, everything's done by keyboard shortcuts. So you would like, I don't know, Control I O for IOCs and then Control S to search them or something like that. Although I have seen the the RSS feed we use has a built-in IOC function now. Oh, nice! I haven't actually it, tested it, but they're, they're, it sounds like people are starting to kind of use APIs to sew these things together. Yeah, there's actually a browser extension also for from Talos to pull that stuff out of their blog feeds. Or their blog oh, posts. interesting. Oh man, why can't I remember the name of this software? I, I've seen this piece of software around for the past four years and I've tested it twice. It is a screen reader. You install it and it just watches your screen and then it uses text recognition. So whenever it sees like IP addresses or URLs or domains, it highlights them. And then it goes back and checks like other people in your team to see if anybody has flagged them or tagged them. And it can be set up to automatically search your SIM for them. Yeah, I know the exact software you're talking about. And 
Oh man, that eludes me at the moment. It's yeah. it's a pretty innocuous name. It's not no stranger. Oh man, polarity. That's, that's it. Polarity. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it looks that cool. looks really slick. It does. Uh, the demos that I've seen from it, it looks uh, pretty slick. And it's not that expensive, but when you, it's my problem with it is it's slow. Now maybe mm. they fixed that. The last time I tested it was like two or three years ago. But it took like every time the screen refreshed, it take a couple seconds to go over the whole screen and pop it up. But it's really cool. And as soon as they can get that again, like we're 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 like we've got the tools. What we're looking for now is how do we put them all together so they work together seamlessly. Like, I think that's the lesson of the Bloomberg app is it's not that like, cause again, we can do all this stuff in various tabs. Uh, but one right. of the things I thought about is, uh, for example, Splunk has the ability to write apps in Splunk. So I'm wondering if maybe this is something you could do. Cause one of the weaknesses of SIM is you can put all the data in there. You frequently cannot access the functionality. For example, if you are looking at your EDR tool, a lot of times it will package all of the information about a suspicious process together. It will show you frequently a visual representation of the process tree and allow you to click through it to investigate specific processes. But in your SIM, that's a whole series of logs. And frequently you cannot access that type of easy functionality through the SIM. You can get the same information, but it's all in text form. And that's uh, something else that the incentive is really there for the EDR folks to improve that functionality either because they want you in their tool because that's yes. something else every vendor that, wants you in their tool right you you can try to get your single pane of glass but you have all these vendors that are feeding the back end to whatever that single pane of glass is all of them wanting you to have to pivot from your single pane of glass into their tool to get your eyes on it it's almost like you know the attention economy where they want you to, they want your eyeballs on their tool not necessarily just getting the data from the tool it would be nice if, if vendors actually didn't produce a front end, all their tools, <laughs> no, all their tools were headless. How awesome yeah. would that be? And then you, you had all this other stuff in your SIM or your case management system or whatever was your front end for all of that. That'd be interesting. That'd be really interesting. Uh, but yeah. I think this is kind of the path that, that Splunk is trying to go down with their mission control. You know, mm -hmm. they have the SIM, SOAR and case management all in one thing now. So I think they're trying to build their own single pane of glass in that way. And maybe Splunk because of their position in the market might be where this is, this solutions is finally going to be created at. Maybe. Because the things that are really holding us back from, from getting here are, you know, the willingness to spend the man hours to build all those integrations and to have a decent experience for both the integrators and the users. So, you know, you may have the ability to do the integration, but it might be really difficult or may take a lot of man hours to do that. So that's not a great experience from the engineer's perspective. Well, and, and that's, that's, and that's, that's what we see everywhere with automation is people are so focused on how do we fix this now, rather than how do we focus, how do we fix this tomorrow, but take the time to create a repeatable automated process. Mm -hmm. That was all, that was all the wisdom I had on that. Right. <laughs> well, that ties into into the other the other point I had on here is that the unwillingness of organizations to trust their automation either. Yeah, I don't know. In this case, it's actually automation that we're thinking about so much as like data transfer. Well, I well, I the reason that I put that in there, and I'm thinking about you know it in in respect to where the security pane, single pane of glass diverges from the Bloomberg pane of glass a little bit actually because I did read that the Bloomberg terminal you can do trades on it. Uh, but I'm thinking about, you know, once you have your security pane of glass, it's not simply, it's, it's not just 
you know, data that you want to read, you want to action it. So there has to be automations and integrations to do things with that data once you have it. So that's what I'm thinking about. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I would, I would settle for just getting the data all in one place and easily, easily connected. So yeah. So again, you find the alert in the SIM, you can easily pivot to a view in the SIM that shows that EDR like view and shows the network connections. And then you can pivot to there directly to the packet analysis in the same place, rather than trying to export the data as a CSV and then open it up in Wireshark or whatever the hell Excel. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think all this can be overcome. The incentives and, and the drive to get there is what is really missing. That's fair. So why does this matter? Well, honestly, it doesn't, at least not in the short term. This is not something that you can go and do something about next week necessarily. Uh, although some of the things David mentioned there, the willingness to spend the man hour during the integrations, the trying to improve the experience, uh, insisting that the vendors provide that data fabric to make sure that they have those APIs and those methods of sharing information. Those are all things you can definitely push for. All right. And our final article is high profile hacks show the effectiveness of MFA fatigue attacks. And this comes to a strong security week. So recently there have been several relatively high profile attacks, which have shown that the use of MFA fatigue with the push point or, or well, I'm not sure if they call it the same thing. I guess these things kind of go together, but MFA fatigue and MFA push notification spam, mm -hmm. how effective that is against any users or your user base. So to start off, just in case we're un anyone's unclear about what a push notification is, this is where a user gets a, a notification sent to their mobile device asking them to approve a login attempt after their username and password have already been entered into an application or system. Now, the user could get flooded with a whole bunch of these events, which is where we're talking about the push, push notification spam. And if they accidentally push, you know, I agree or yes or whatever, there's no undo. There's no double checking to make sure that is the, the choice that they wanted. They make one mistake on, on the button they're pushing and the attackers are in. And the, the idea of the MFA fatigue is that you send so many to a user, they just get fed up of, of receiving them and hit yes, just to make it go away. And in the case of the Uber, the Uber attack, which we talked about either a week or two ago, mm -hmm. the victim contact or the, the attacker contacted the victim on WhatsApp claiming to be a member of the IT department and asked them to click approve for the MFA notification. Actually, and as a, if I ever think about it, how did they know to contact them on WhatsApp? Well, since this is, well, a little back, a little side note here on, on the Uber attacks. This was done by a 17 year old who'd been previously arrested for their role in earlier attacks from the Lapsus group. So Lapsus, I think we may have talked about them previously, but they are yeah. specialists in social engineering. So they must've really done their research in order to understand how that Uber uses or communicates or, or, or their business process, some of their business processes to understand that WhatsApp is how they do these things. That's fair. But the reason this is important is that this type of attack can actually work on just about anybody because it's, it is an attack on human nature. You know, once you get so many things, you just want it to stop. It's almost like torture where you're willing to do anything to prevent from getting the, the, the zine spam messages asking you to approve, approve an MFA. 
And since computer systems don't work perfectly as much as we would like them to, a user may just think, oh, well, the system's messed up, obviously. Otherwise, it wouldn't be keep requesting this. So I'm just going to say yes, just to make it stop so that they can, so this bug will go away if they, because they may assume it's a bug of that kind. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before, but when I started using MFA for the very first time, there was an incredible number of off hours notifications because I just left my work computer on 24 seven and whenever it expired, it would try to re-log in. So there were, there were quite a few kind of off hours like, huh, why am I getting an MFA prompt here? And we, I finally figured out it was because I was leaving my computer on all day. So how you counteract this thing, the Oracle apps provided several things, recommendations. In addition to just turning off push notifications, which I don't know if that's necessarily the nuclear option, but I don't think it's a big deal not to have push notifications. Sure, they're handy, but I don't think they're critical personally. But one of the things they mentioned, I think we actually mentioned this when we talked about the Uber hack as well, is training on MFA. You know, make sure your employees understand that this attack even exists. And if they do seem to be getting a lot of these, they should contact the security team about it. And of course, you can rate limit to block attempted authentication to account if they hit a lot, if there's a lot, large number of push requests. So you should be able to, depending on if your MFA logs it, you should be able to, I think we talked about this before, but also create alerts for brute force attacks, especially successful brute force attacks. You don't necessarily care if somebody failed 20 times, but you care if somebody failed 20 times and then succeeded once. Although you, you also may want to know who's doing the failures just so you can know who's being targeted and maybe reach out to them and ask them like, hey, we've noticed you're getting a lot of these requests. And then maybe look at alternates as if you can't do some of these other things for everybody, maybe you can look at who your most attacked people are and do something about them. Right, it's a good idea. I have them every now and then. On occasion. But something the article mentioned, which I had not heard of before, I'd never used this in an MFA, but number matching in, a, in the MFA. So the way that this works is that if you go to your computer, you attempt to log in, you put in the username and password, you send a push notification to your, to your mobile device. And the mobile device says, put in the number, which is displayed on your screen in order to validate that you are approving this MFA. Uh, because, and because the attacker can't see your screen, supposedly, most likely, they are not going to know what that number is. They can't put it in. And if you aren't attempting to log in, you can't see a screen with a number on it. So you can't even hit, even if you hit yes, it would not work because you don't have that number, which seems an effective, like a confirming methodology for your push notifications. But if you're going to do that, why not just get rid of push notifications, put the number in anyway? Yeah, I agree. And of course, the last option is the use of actual physical security keys, Keck card or, or YubiKey or something like that. That one seems like that one's the safest one for sure. Would agree. Well, that looks like that's all the articles you have for today. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at Serengeti Psych on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.